Revelation chapter um, number 2 and 3 is Jesus' message to the church. I said it before and I'm going to say it again. I, I think we all gravitate toward the tribulation. We all want to learn about the tribulation. We all want to know about the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, and all that kind of stuff. We want to know what all those symbols and all that imagery means. And we're going to get to it. We're probably actually going to do that on a, on a Wednesday night, though, because some of that stuff is so technical and some of it is... Um, there's so much symbolism there that you have to speculate too much and I would rather do that more of a teaching environment than I had a preaching environment um, but listen I believe and I'll get there I'm probably going to at least preach through chapter 4 on Sunday mornings but the church ain't got to worry about the tribulation now that's what I believe there are other people disagree with me but I don't believe we got to go through the tribulation I believe that Jesus is going to save us from that time of wrath and so it's not really important that we know that much about any of that. Um, but what is important is that we know who we are, where we are when that time comes. And that's what the church age is all about. That's, that, that's the place where Jesus is in the midst of his church. That's the place where Jesus is holding his pastors in his hands. And um, that's what will seal um, our destiny is what we do with Jesus in the church age. Um, not what we do with Jesus in the tribulation, what we do with Jesus now, before that time comes, and it'll also seal our position um, for all eternity. Something interesting that I, that I read this week, I'm, I'm going to just run back through the list of churches. You can go and put them up if you want to, Zena. I'm going um, to review real quick, but, but something that I read that I've never seen before is that the whole structure of these letters is almost like concentric circles. It's kind of pulling your focus in. And, and, and by that, um, and I never really even noticed this before, but the first church and the seventh church are, are known as the least healthy of the churches. The first church losing its first love, and the last church, Laodicea, was the one Jesus wanted to vomit out of his mouth. The second and the sixth are the most healthy and then when you get to the heart of those letters, 3, 4, and 5, it starts with bad and gets progressively worse up to 5. And so I, I just thought that was, that was interesting the way they have been laid out for us in scriptures. Um, Ephesus was a church that lived right but did not love well. They were losing their first love. Um, their love was waning. Now you would never have been able to call that church a liberal church, but they were probably very quickly becoming, becoming a legalistic church because they focused more on the deeds than they did the reason that they did what they did. Their love for Christ and their love for other people should have been what motivated them, but they were serving more with their head and with their hands than they were their heart. Now, I don't, I don't know, some of this makes sense to me and some of it don't, but if you look at it historically, some Bible scholars believe that that represents the apostolic church age up until the time when the last apostle died, John, around 100 A.D. Smyrna was a poor church and a persecuted church. If you look at the terms Jesus used to describe them, they were in abject poverty and suffering extreme persecution. And Jesus said even though they were poor by the world standards, they were a rich church spiritually. They were doing what, they, they, they were doing what he called them to do um, there are only two churches that had no condemnation, no criticism, and it was the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia. Jesus didn't have anything negative to say about them, and the only thing he told them to do was you just keep, you just don't be afraid of all this stuff that's coming your way. 
You just keep being faithful to me. Historically, that would probably represent the age when the church was the most hated, 100 A.D. to 312 A.D., when Rome was coming against the church and the, Jew, um, the, Jews, the Jewish religious establishment was coming against the church, doing everything that they could to stop its spread. Um, Pergamos. Last week we talked about Pergamos. They were getting along well. They were doing a lot of good things, um, but they were also going along with some things. So um, th- th- they were holding fast to Jesus' name and to the faith. So their faith was in the right place, and they were holding on to that. But Jesus' criticism of them was that they were not holding their membership accountable and that there were people that were in the midst of them um, who were believing wrong things. And bad belief ultimately... Um, leads to bad behavior and that was probably the age when the church became very popular which was the time when um, when the church united itself with the state during um, when Constantine became a Christian made Christianity the state religion and all of a sudden the church became very wealthy and the church was not persecuted as it had been and um, before we move on let me just say that the, the church's biggest enemy has never been um, adversity has always been prosperity. Um, the, the, the more freedom that we have and the more prosperous that we become, the more apathetic and indifferent to the things of God. Apathy um, always is a result of prosperity, not of adversity. Um, today we're going to talk about the church at Thyatira. I'm going to call it the large, loving, but let living church. There's a lot of similarities between this and the church at Pergamos. Um, this is where it kind of starts getting a little bit cloudy for me as far as making that historical connection. Um, but most of the Bible scholars that adhere to that say that that would have been about 606 A.D. into the 16th century when the Protestant Reformation happened uh, in the 1500s. But, but um, this church is, is the opposite of Ephesus in that they are not losing their love. They love well. Um, um, they're, they're not legalistic like Ephesus was, but they are becoming um, liberal. Um, they're worse than Pergamos in that they're false beliefs. There were false beliefs at Pergamos. And when you get to Thyatira, it takes it a step further, and now they're tolerating not just false beliefs in the church, but false teachers um, within the church. And so I think if you follow this progression... We, uh, Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, I, I love the fact that you hate what I hate. And I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which was, which was lawlessness. And then the next church you have a belief system that has set itself up in the heart of that church. And then the, uh, and then the next church uh, you, you see that in, in Thyatira they begin to preach and teach those doctrines within the church. So, so if you follow this progression... If, if sinful deeds are tolerated, um, they'll become sinful doctrines that are believed, which makes room for um, false teachers, sinful false teachers to be established within the walls of the church and, and those doctrines perpetuated. Um, one more interesting note, and then we're going to read. This is the middle. This is the heart of the letters to the churches. It's number four. It's right in the heart, three before it, three behind it. It is also written to the smallest church in the smallest city um, that was mentioned. Um, probably the least significant city in that it was not a, it was not a religious center and it was not a, a commercial center. 
Um, but even though it was the smallest church in the smallest city, it received the longest letter. And I said that just to say this. It doesn't matter the size of the church. If you are naming the name of Christ, Christ will hold you accountable. This is Jesus writing to a little church in a little city. And he's writing the longest exhortation. Um, actually, there's commendation and there's a criticism here. But the longest letter has been written to the smallest church. And so it doesn't matter. You look around this community and think Jesus cares more about that big church than he does a small church. If you're naming the name of Jesus, if you're proclaiming to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will hold us accountable for who we are and for what we're doing and for what is being taught in our midst. So let's read it, and then I'm going to come back and just um, and, and point out some of the same. The, the structure of all these letters is the same. Four phrases are used over and over that points to the heart of what he wants to get to in every one of these letters. Um, and you'll pick them up as we read. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God. That is um, the only time in the book of Revelation he refers to himself as the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Never, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my service to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you, I say, and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which you have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." I've already said demographically this is a little city. The primary thing the city is known for, and you can dig this up in archaeology, they're known for their agriculture and they're known for their industry. Um, one of Paul's, in fact, Paul's first convert when he went to Macedonia, remember he heard that call, the Macedonian call, um, where he, God, he wanted to go one place and God sent him to another. And the first convert that he had in that place was a lady by the name of Lydia, who the scripture identified as a seller of purple, and she was from Thyatira. She may have actually been the one that took the gospel back to this city. It was a city that was full of, of, um, of industry. Um, metal works were there, pottery was there, clothing were there. They were especially known for the manufacture of purple dye, um, which was a dye that was used in royal clothing. Trade guilds, which would be the modern-day um, trade union or labor union, 
um, probably got their start there in Tyre. They organized themselves into these trade guilds, and Lydia was probably a part of one of those trade guilds. And that may have been where the root of some of these problems started. And I'm not going to get real deep here. I think it helps, though, to see the background. These were actual churches that exist. And when this church existed in Tyre, um, it was primarily a blue-collar labor force organized into these trade guilds or trade unions. And part of what they did is the same thing trade unions do today. They get together from time to time. And they talk about their industry and they talk about how to improve their industry and to improve the conditions of their in- industry. And there were common meals served there. And it's very likely that these common meals involved eating meat that had been offered to idols and that their Pretty common, probably even still today, um, that these that these common meals became a feast of drunkenness, and then that drunkenness led to a loss of inhibitions, and so they indulged in all kind of debauchery there. Um, Christians that worked in these trades um, were in danger of being led into this idolatry and immorality, or even risk losing their livelihoods. Now. Um, Zeb worked for the railroad for a little while, and I'm not. I'm don't 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 you get hair lit with me right now about what I'm going to say. All right, you may have worked for the railroad for a long time too. Railroad's been a good employer. Some of you retired, made your living there. I don't have any problems with the railroad. The railroad union. When Zeb went to work for the railroad, they sent that paper to my house. Um, that that union paper. Um, that that union was more about liberalism and politics than it was what was going on at the railroad. And so this is, that's the kind of pressure that they put on people to be involved in the union that you go along with what the union says is all right. And that you endorse these people, that you follow these paths, that you have these ideologies. And, and, um, and, 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 and they may do it under the guise that if you do this, you're going to help the union. This same kind of situation going on at Tire Tire. You work in this city, you're a part of a trade guild. You need to get in line and do what everybody else is doing, which involved eating that meat that had been offered to idols, possibly even paying homage to the gods. Um, Vulcan, y'all heard the name Vulcan? That was the god of metals and metalworking. So these trade guilds probably had each had their own god that they that they would pay homage to as they um, as they plied their trade, and made their living. It's obvious from his description of himself. First thing Jesus does in every letter is describes himself. It's obvious from his description of himself. That he has eyes like a flame of fire. That's all that's in the vision that John had in, in chapter 1. He had eyes like a flame of fire. He identified himself as, they, as the Son of God. And he had feet like unto brass. Every one of those things speaks of righteous indignation. The fire in his eyes and the feet of brass and him being the Son of God um, who is the executor of judgment. So uh, when Jesus writes this letter to this church, it's pretty obvious from his introduction of himself that there's some righteous indignation that's rising up in him. That there are things amiss in this church that threaten this church's testimony, its reputation, and that bring reproach to his name by doing so. So and 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 the description of himself, Jesus is implying that you you need to set these things straight. Because my judgment is imminent. But before he addresses what's wrong, he takes one verse and speaks to the devout Christians. You might say there's another one later on. But right at the beginning of the letter, Jesus takes one verse, verse 19, um, to tell the devout Christians at Tyre what is right among them. There is a glowing praise for their love and faith. Now I know there are four words mentioned there. 
Um, he said, I know your works, which he says to all the church. Um, I know your charity, which is love, agape, and your service, and your faith, and your patience, or your endurance, or your long-suffering. Um, I, I just use faith and love. There's glowing praise for their faith, uh, for their love and faith, because the works that they do flow out of that. Um, their love is manifested in their service. Their faith is, motiv- uh, is, is manifested in their endurance. They are keeping on in the faith because they believe it with all of their heart. Um, so so out of their, they're serving because they're loving. They're enduring because they're believing. And he went on to say in the last part of that verse um, that they're growing. That the latter part is better than the first part. They're growing in these things. They're, um, they're, they have more love for God and more trust in God. They have... Um, they, they have a greater love for people and a greater service to people. Um, and, and so Jesus points to the fact that this church is healthy that the, and that they're doing the right things. They're, they're believing the right things and they're doing the right things and they're doing them um, for the right way. They're marked by, one, one, one fellow that I read behind this week said they're marked by love, they're marked by labor, um, not not back-breaking labor, but the kind of labor that's serving out of love, um, loyalty to the faith and long-suffering because of their faith. So when Paul wrote to the book of Galatia, he talked about the legalism not meaning anything. Circumcision or uncircumcision avails nothing in Christ, um, but faith which worketh by love. Faith which worketh by love. Faith that is manifested in your love um, for God and your love for other people. And so faith is working by love in Thyatira. It is a healthy, growing body of believers, but there is a danger that's lurking underneath. And that's where he points out a glaring problem that they were tolerating. Um, he said, you have that woman. In verse 20, you have that woman. You're permitting that. He used the word, King James uses the word sufferest. You are permitting. You are tolerating. You are accepting the fact there is a woman there named Jezebel. And he specifically said what she's doing is that she is teaching and seducing people in the church to be engaged in immorality and idolatry. Now, it is very unlikely that there was a woman named Jezebel there. It's probably a reference to the Old Testament Jezebel and that this woman was identifying herself in the same way that the Jezebel in the Old Testament identified herself. Um, Jezebel was was the daughter of a pagan king who married a king um, in Judah, Ahab, or in Israel, and um, by her pagan worship of her religion and immorality, she enticed the whole rest of the nation to indulge themselves in sin. Um, first, first Kings chapter 21, verse 25 says that there was none likened to Ahab. He is, he is a king of Israel, of God's people. There was none likened to Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness, in the sight of the Lord, and then it says, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. In other words, Ahab had a conscience at one time, and you can see that when you read about him. He understood that Elijah was different. He understood, he knew things about God. He had been part of God's people, God's kingdom. Um, but when he married Jezebel, when she began to teach him that false religion, that idolatry, and that immorality, she incited him. She enticed him. She taught him and she seduced him um, to follow in that practice with her. And so in that, they infected the whole nation of Israel. So there's this woman at Thyatira. How many, when's the last time you heard any, any girl named Jezebel? 
We don't name girls Jezebel and we don't name boys Judases for reasons. So this was probably this woman was probably not being identified by name. In fact, I think that's their, the purpose in that would be there are people in this text that are identified by name. Antipas, we talked about him last week, who was a faithful martyr, unknown in that sense, but he was known because of his righteousness, not because of his wickedness. And so I think sometimes God doesn't name people just because he doesn't want us to make a specific application to one person, but he wants us to see the broad context and that anybody can act like Jezebel. You have a woman there in that church who claims to be a prophetess. She claims to be speaking for me. She claims to be one who has a word from God. Now, there's, I don't have time to dig this out. You can study it yourself. Um, early in the history of the church, they were dealing with a teaching called Gnosticism. Which, which I, and I'm going to boil it down as simply as I can for you. Gnosticism was simply a thought process that the, that the material world, that everything physical was altogether wicked, um, and that, that it had no bearing whatsoever on spiritual, that they were completely separated. So the teaching was basically and essentially that you could live your life any way you wanted to live it and indulge yourself physically in anything you wanted to indulge yourself, and it had no bearing on your spirit person. Now, the, the way this Gnosticism took root is these people... Um, claim to have a revelation from God and a deeper knowledge of God, deeper knowledge of God than other Christians did. So it became a, it became a cult. These people had um, claimed special revelation from God that gave them a deeper understanding and better understanding even than the apostles had in the things of God. Um, when Jesus referred to Jezebel's doctrine in verse 30, uh, 24, rather, he called the doctrine not the deeper things of God but the depths of Satan. And he's commending the church there that have not bought into that. And it was probably a stab at this Gnostic heresy that said that they had a deeper knowledge of God. And Jesus said that's not a deeper knowledge of God. They're indulging themselves in the depths of Satan. Now, the, Satan is always a counterfeiter. He's always a masquerader. and he all, He'll come on the scene and plant false and ideas and false doctrines just as surely today as he did in the Garden of Eden. And he'll do it in the midst of the church if he has opportunity to do it. And that's exactly what was happening um, through this prophetess um, who Jesus referred to as Jezebel. It had nothing to do with a deeper knowledge of God. It had nothing to do with a deeper knowledge of truth. Um, this was the depths of Satan being planted in this church. And keep in mind, this, this is a church that is abounding in love and faith. They know who Jesus is, they know what Jesus did, and they're abounding in love. They're loving people. They're loving God, they're loving people. But they were losing their sensitivity and discernment to doctrinal error and immorality. That don't sound strangely familiar to y'all? That a culture becomes so engulfed in we just got to love God and love people that you lose your ability to discern good and evil, morality and immorality, truth and error. You just get all wrapped up in this word love. And I'll, I'll tell you, in, in the first library meeting that we went to way back in August, the, the, the moderator of that meeting who, who calls herself a pastor 
and who made a point in that meeting of letting everybody know there that she, in fact, she, led, she opened the meeting in prayer. I thought it was a little bit of a, I, I ought not to be critical of people's prayer life, but it didn't sound like a Christian prayer to me. But she does claim to have a, a Christian foundation, and she claims to be a Christian pastor. But in the course of that meeting, when we were talking about the sexuality displays and all, she said, look, I, I am a Christian, and I believe the Bible, and I love God, and I love Jesus, and I believe we're just supposed to love and accept and, and, and embrace everybody. The church at Thyatira. They're loving well. Jesus, not, he's not faulting them for loving people. He's not faulting them for their faith. What he's faulting them for is they are loving large, but they are letting other people live contrary to the word of God without saying a word about it. To the point of letting it so be established in the church that they're not just believing the wrong thing anymore, but they got a teacher in the midst of that church that is teaching the wrong thing, and the church is tolerating that. So their error was accommodation. They were accommodating worldly standards inside the walls of the church. And they were indifferent to biblical holiness, which is what God calls us all to. Now, I preached this message when I talked about keeping it between the ditches. God is love. The Bible says that over and over again. It says God is love. I tell you what, it says more than that. It says that God is holy. And never in the Bible do you hear it say that God is love, love, love. All through the Bible you will hear it said that God is holy, holy, holy. Now those are, those are I don't believe one is more important than the other. I believe those are co-equal attributes of God. Um, but you can't preach one to the exclusion of the other. If you preach holiness without love, then you have a legalistic God who will strike you dead the first time you sin. If you preach love without holiness, then you have a liberalistic God who, who doesn't care what you do as long as you love Him. And neither one of those are true. God is holy and God is loving, and they don't counteract each other. They are working in harmony together. And this church was excelling in the love side and failing miserably in the holiness side. Even though there were some in the church that were doing well, that were living well, and Jesus commended them for what they were doing, he said, you still are tolerating stuff that you ought not to tolerate. You're letting stuff live in your church that ought not to live in that church. I like this quote from John Stott talking about this letter. He said, In that fair field, a poisonous weed was being allowed to luxuriate. In that healthy body, a malignant cancer had begun to form. An enemy was being harbored in the midst of the fellowship. That's a, that's a good description of the church at Thyatira. When you look at these two things, idolatry and, and immorality, idolatry and sexual immorality, I, I would challenge you, if you will walk yourself through the scriptures, you will find that idolatry and sexual immorality walk hand in hand through the scriptures. When you see one, you see the other. Satan has used one of God's greatest gifts to man, which is sex. It came before the fall. In the context that God created it in, there's nothing sinful about it. It's a beautiful expression of the oneness of the church. It says that throughout Scripture, that it's an expression of the one flesh relationship that the church has with Christ. There's nothing, there's nothing dirty about it in the context that God created it in. It's when you take it out of that context 
that it becomes destructive. And listen, when God said no to something, he didn't say no to it just because he wanted to say no to it, just because he could say no to it. He said no to it because it is destructive by its very nature. Satan knows that. He is the thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And I want to tell you, when you dive out there in the water that he offers you, you'll find yourself in worse condition than you were before you did. It, it, it is never to give you an abundant and victorious life. It is always to kill, steal, and destroy your life. At its heart, sexual immorality is idolatry. It is, it is that you abandon your principles, your standards, your morals. You abandon God's word for, for self-pleasure, for self-gratification. Over and over and over again, the scripture condemns both. Listen, there's a group of people out there that are pretending and teaching that the Word of God doesn't have anything to say about sexual immorality. you got to be blind, deaf, or just pure blissfully ignorant to believe that. It's full of it. The Scripture is full of it. From the very beginning to the very end, it's full of it. You, you will find over and over and over um, warnings and exhortations and prohibitions um, the Bible calls it out over and over and over again. I'm just going to give you a couple of verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. It, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation just because it takes less explanation. God's will is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. What is sexual sin? It is anything outside the boundaries of marriage. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor. Verse 5, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Verse 8, therefore anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The King James Version said that first verse that God's will is for us to abstain from fornication. People ask me all the time, Preacher, what is the will of God for your life? I can promise you that it is not the will of God for you to go outside of a marriage between a man and a woman to engage in sexual uh, immorality. It is not in the will of God. If you are doing that, you are outside of the will of God. If you're talking about premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexual sex, um, polygamy, um, pro promiscuity, I don't care what kind of label, if you go outside of the bounds of a man and a woman uh, in, in, in holy matrimony, in covenant marriage before God, it is a sin. It's a sin. It is not the will of God. You can walk that way if you want to, but you will not be in the way and the will of God. And the Bible says you determine who you're serving by the path that you take, Romans 6, 16. So which path are you going? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable and all in the bed undefiled. It means God approves of the marriage bed. But whoremongers... And adulterers 
God will judge. That word whoremongers comes from the same word that fornication comes from, and it means all sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage, and adulterers is sexual, extramarital sexual activity outside the marriage. Whoremongers and, God, and adulterers, God will judge. You, don't you let anybody tell you that. Don't include homosexuality. Home, whoremongers is all who indulge in sexual activity outside of marriage. And homosexual marriage is not marriage. It, by definition, over, one of the most often articulated um, passages in God's word is for this cause. God made them male and female, man and woman, and they too became one flesh. So this is where they're at. This woman Jezebel is teaching and seducing the people in that church to engage themselves in idolatry and immorality. And now there's a growing peril that's coming upon them. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you and then I'm going to explain it. There's a judgment that's coming that will, that will cause them to suffer. And if they do not repent in the midst of that suffering, then what follows that will be destruction and death. Here's what Jesus said to that church. I tried to give Jezebel. I gave her. I gave her space to repent. Now what does that mean? It means that, it means that the Holy Spirit, that, that, that God had dealt with Jezebel, that she knew that she was in error but refused to acknowledge that error. I gave her a space to repent. Listen to me. God doesn't judge people who don't. He, he, he by his spirit, by his word, has instructed us in what is right. She knows that what she's doing is wrong. I gave her space to repent, and she would not. Now, you go read Romans chapter 1. Beginning about verse 18, right on down to the end. It says three times in that passage, and there's a whole bunch of it about sexual morality, because they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, because they held the truth and that, that, that they, that's not the word, um, basically that they, res, they refused to receive the truth because they loved the unrighteousness. That's said in several places. It's the work of the Antichrist at work in the world already. They held the truth, but they, they, they chose unrighteousness instead. And three times in that chapter it says God gave them up and God gave them over to a reprobate mind, which is a mind void of conscience. And so what's being implied in this text is that Jezebel was reprobate. That she had her chance, but that her chance had passed. That her mind has been given up and given over. And that she would be judged by God. Now what he said is that I will cast her into a bed. Look that word up. It means sick bed. Not just a bed, but a sick bed. It is a bed of suffering that she would lie in because of her unwillingness to repent. He also said that she would be joined by those who committed adultery with her. 
Now, now think beyond the physical act of adultery for a minute. This is spiritual adultery. This is people who follow the teachings of, Ahab, of Jezebel. These are people who are buying into the lie that she's selling. These are, these are the people who want to indulge themselves in idolatry and immorality. And Jesus says, I'm going to cast them into the bed with her. And they're going to go into great tribulation unless they repent. So Jezebel's been judged. But the people that are buying into that lie that she's telling and selling still have an opportunity but it's going to that opportunity is going to come through their suffering they're going to be they're going to suffer with her because Jesus is going to give them a space to repent that's the, that's the that's the biblical idea behind all of God's discipline is for correction to get us off of a wrong path and to set us on a right path Look, you can, I looked at this. I'm, <clears throat> I'm trying not to chase a rabbit, but this one's run by. He run by too many times. <laughs> I, I want you to look at what what he says in that in that verse 22. This is a spiritual sexually transmitted disease. This is a spiritual STD. In that, if you hang out. If this woman is allowed to hang out and teach what she teaches, the disease that she carries is going to be given to everybody that lays in the bed with her. Y'all, it's infecting entire churches and entire denominations and it is spreading across this country like a wildfire out of control. There's a time, there's an opportunity for some people. I, I, I believe, and it's not, this is not my call to make nor is it yours to make. Jezebel's reprobate. She don't have a chance to be saved. Her mind has been wholly given over and given up by God. She doesn't have a conscience anymore. And, and I can show you some more scripture to back that up. And there are other people like that in this world. And there are other people like that that are inside the professing church. But let me caution you and say, I don't know who they are. I don't, but God does. God does, and I would say this, if you have a conscience of sin, you're not reprobate. If you're worried that you might be crossed the line, you're not reprobate. If you've gone too far in the wrong direction, you wonder if God can ever forgive you, you're not reprobate. You still have a conscience of sin. A reprobate mind has no conscience of sin, and there are people that are in this camp who have no conscience of sin that I'm quite sure probably have gone past their space of repentance, but I can't tell you who they are. I can't put my... God did not give me the opportunity to pass that kind of judgment on somebody. But what he did say is that there are some out there that are inside Jezebel's camp, that are listening to what Jezebel's teaching, that are participating in what Jezebel has promoted that there is a chance for them if they will acknowledge that they are in sin and repent of that sin and come out of it but they're not going to do that they're not going to do that if we don't confront that 
And that was the problem that Jesus had with Thyatira. You are, you are letting this go on. If you don't put a stop to it, then the, then the lie that Satan is proliferating through this apostate, reprobate person will spread through the church and infect it. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Jesus is going to be glorified in His church. You hear me? If you, if you are naming the name of Jesus and professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the church belongs to Him. He's the head of it. He's going to be glorified in it. He's not going to tolerate it. He'll cast you into that sick bed with Jezebel. And you'll go through tribulation. So, what's our responsibility when we see this kind of stuff going on inside the church? If you're in it personally, repent of it. If you've bought the lie or you're practicing the lie, repent of it. If you see it in the church, rebuke it. I know we don't like to do that, but the Bible is given for repentance. For reproof, for rebuke, for exhortation, um, for instruction in righteousness. For correction, for instruction in righteousness. If you see it going on in the church, we have responsibility to rebuke it. And then if you can't remove it from the church, you remove yourself from the church. You go somewhere it ain't being taught. I have many United Methodist brethren that fought the fight for, for the last, at least the last two decades when Jezebel began to teach this doctrine. You understand the Wesleyan denomination, were, 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 they were built on the doctrines of personal holiness. Wesley had good doctrine as far as what God expects out of, out of his church and his people. But, but somewhere along the way, a Jezebel got planted there. And, and instead of being rebuked, instead of being put out, she was allowed to climb to a position of responsibility, teaching authority in the church. And now the whole denomination has been infiltrated. And listen, I got good, solid, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving brethren who've been part of that, who did their very best to hold the line until the line until it became very obvious to them that there's more of them now than there is of us. There's, that they have gained the positions of uh, seats of authority where they're not going to let us. We, we can rebuke them all we want, but it ain't going to change anything. So, so what are they doing now? They're coming out of it. They're just coming out of it. They're beginning their own Methodist denomination. Splitting. That's biblical. If you can't get it, if you can't repent of it, if you've, done, if you've seen it and rebuked it, if you can't remove it from yourself, then you remove yourself from it. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 11 says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. It doesn't say tolerate them, it says reprove them. And then God gives them 
in spite of everything that's going on there. God gives them the, the faithful, the devout, the people that are, that are still hanging on. Even though they've got some stuff going on, they're tolerating some stuff they shouldn't. Some stuff that they've got to deal with, they need to deal with. Jesus gives them some glorious promises. He said, I'm not going to put any other burden on you. Hey, that's good news, ain't it? I tell you, sometimes you feel like you're carrying all the burden you can carry. But Jesus said, I'm not going to put anything else on you. What did he put on them? Deal with her. Deal with her. Deal with those that are following her. Now, if she's reprobate, she needs to go. But if the people that are following her don't understand, won't hear, then they need to go. But they ain't never going to be convicted of sin until they're confronted with sin. Until you're willing to call it what it is. Listen, we've got to stop muddying the water about this stuff. Just call it what it is. That ain't you. That's God calling it what it is. That's the scripture calling it what it is. He said, I, I ain't going to put anything else on you. No more burden. You just hold on fast. You, you keep walking like you're walking. You keep. You, ain't nothing wrong with loving. You love. Love big. Love large. But don't let this stuff live in your heart. Don't let it live in the house that calls itself by my name. Don't let it live in your house. To those who overcome, that is those that did not give in to or tolerate the deceit of idolatry and immorality. He, he, he actually quoted a verse. He said, um, I'm, I'm going to give you power over the nations. And then he quoted a verse, and I think it comes from Psalm chapter 2, that's actually a prophecy given about how he would one day rule the nations with a rod of iron, which happens at the end of the book of Revelation. But now Jesus is saying to this church, I'm going to give you no other burden as long as you hold on to that that you have until I come. And when I come, I'm going to give you power and authority in my kingdom. And I believe that means both now and, and hereafter. Jesus said to us now that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is going to be loosed in heaven. And so we have, we have power and authority right now. It's given to us from God's word that we need to say what he said and do what he did. That, that we need to call it what it is because he called it what it is. And that authority doesn't come from us. That comes from him. And, 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 and along with that, there's judgment. Listen, throw that. Th these people that are, that are, anytime you say anything about sexual sin, they run to Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. T take that passage of scripture completely and totally out of context and don't read anything else that it says. That's a misapplication and a misinterpretation of scripture, but that's the first place they're going to run. The Bible tells us that we have a responsibility to judge each other inside the context of the church. Now, the whole world's going to hell outside of Jesus. They are. We don't have to judge them. Their judgment's being reserved. We still need to call sin what it is because a person knowing that they're a sinner is the first step in knowing that they need a Savior. But inside the church, we have a responsibility to judge ourselves and to judge each other. And the whole shepherding side of that, the words that he used there um, is, is, that, is that, that idea of 
that we're not just calling people out for their sins. We're trying to pull them back to where they need to be. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. How does a shepherd do that? With a hook, with a rod, with a staff. Pulling, smacking, whatever it takes to get them back to where they need to be in safety. That responsibility is given to the church. I'm not putting any, any other burden, but I'm giving you power and authority to exercise judgment and to be shepherds of the church here on this earth. And then the last promise that he makes is I'll give you the morning star. Now, I don't know. There's, there's a bunch of these things in, in Revelation and these promises that are given that I don't completely understand, and I'm not going to speculate to the point of, of, of misinterpreting God's word. But I will say this, at the conclusion of the matter, in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16, Jesus introduced himself after, after he had set everything in order. And we are ushered into a new kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth, where we'll live and reign with him forever and forever. Jesus said, I am the bright and morning star. So I believe what Jesus says to us now is that if you do what I have called you to do, and be who I have called you to be, I will give you these things, including my abiding presence in your midst. Now, I can tell you the two things that are going to be different in the churches that stand and the churches that don't. And you can, I, I'm going to call churches by name because you can look them up just as good as I can. I actually should call a few of them by name because they're Jezebel churches. She owns them. Satan owns them, and she's proliferating the lie. And listen, I have a young man who grew up in our youth group who went to Free Will Baptist Bible College and then got a, a master's degree. He may have got his Ph.D. From, um, from Sanford University in theological ministry who is a part of the United Church of Christ now, and they are as apostate as they come. In his ordination service, I saw his picture, and he's dressed in a frock with rainbows all over it. The flying banner of their whole denomination is that they are the most welcoming. They don't only welcome and include people who have aberrant sexual behaviors. They don't really care what you believe as long as you believe in something. This kid grew up in my youth group and was exposed to a Jezebel somewhere. And she has twisted and perverted. He and I, had we, we knocked heads several years ago and he wrote me off completely. My heart aches for him. Every time I see a picture of him, I think about, he's the first convert in his family. He's the, he, he was baptized and was one of the most faithful kids in my youth group. But Jezebel, probably at one of these liberal, Free Will Baptist Bible College is not liberal, so he didn't get it there. But one of these other theological seminaries that's, that's, that's headed up by Jezebels has led him astray. Now he's leading others astray. And I had the audacity to call him out. If we will stand where he tells us to stand, his presence is going to be in the midst. The presence of Jesus is not in the midst of the United Church of Christ. It is not in the PCUSA. It is not going to be in the United Methodist Church. I remember in the Old Testament when, when the Ark of the Covenant was taken away, which represented the manifested presence of God. 
you remember Phineas, or not Phineas, um, Eli's, well, one of them was named Phineas. Eli's two sons that were doing so wicked, and they were committing immorality at the door of the temple and robbing the meat that the people brought for sacrifice, eating it for themselves. When the Ark of the Covenant was taken, and Eli died, there was a son that was born to one of those men's wives, and they named him Ichabod. Ichabod means the glory has departed. The presence of God is no longer here. But what Jesus promised us, that if we stand, the morning star is going to stand with you. What does that mean? The morning star is the star that shines all the way through the night and into the day. Some people say it's Venus. You ever got up early in the morning and the, dawn, the day has dawned? And you look up in the sky and you see that there's still one star that's burning. I'm going to tell you something. We might be living in the dark right now. But there's a day star. There's a morning star. That's going to always be shining for us and with us. And he's going to take us through this dark night and be with us even to the end. He promised us that. Lord's loving is good. We need to do that. I, in fact, I'll tell you this. I need to do a better job of that. I, I have to be real careful that I don't let my passion for the truth usurp my love for other people. We've been called to love them. We've been called to love them enough to tell them the truth. Everybody that claims to be a prophet of God, everybody that claims to be a Christian is not a prophet of God and is not a Christian. And here's, here's how you simply, you identify them very simply like this. If they are teaching or living contrary to the word of God, they are not who they say they are. It's just that easy. And they have no place in the church. And they can accuse us of being unloving. But I would just say to you, there's nothing more unloving in all this world than to let an ambassador of Satan sow weeds among the wheat and lead people astray. And you make no mistake about this. They are targeting your children. If they can turn them away from the truth, they will have infected two to three generations beyond them. Ephesians 6, 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Will you be found standing when he comes? Will you be found standing when he comes? You better make sure you're standing for the right doctrine, for the right teaching, for the right people. As the musicians come, lead us an invitational hymn. Could you stand with me this morning?
heard Chris say it this morning, how incredible it is that so many times, Lord, your word and our study of it lines up, corresponds, speaks to exactly the place where we're living at. The things that we're dealing with. Our Sunday school lessons the past few weeks in Esther and Daniel. These letters to these churches. Lord, I didn't I didn't know we were gonna be in this place. I, I didn't I didn't know what was gonna happen in the culture around us. The last several months it seems like everything has ramped up exponentially. That is the enemy's just He's throwing every fiery dart he knows how to throw right now in this, in this area of idolatry and immorality. And I didn't know we were going to be living here, living here now. I didn't plan these series of messages around all this. I don't believe the writers of our Sunday school literature planned the literature all around this. But you knew what was coming. And in your sovereignty... You've given us these exhortations and these examples from your words so that we know how to respond. We, we know how to react. We, we, we know what to do. And so help us, Lord. Daniel and those three friends of his have been heroes to most all of us that have grown up in church and um, the one thing that we could say about all of their lives is that when everybody else was telling them to bow they just kept standing God I pray you'd help us not just look at them as our heroes that's the people that we ought to be following their example doesn't matter how unpopular that might make us be in this culture the culture will never shift in the right direction as long as the church is sitting silent on the sidelines we got to be a voice of truth among all the lies that the enemy given birth to all around us so help us to do that Lord I believe your people are going to be identified by how we stand where we stand in the book of Ezekiel you, you, before you destroyed Jerusalem before you raised it to the ground you told one of your angelic judges to go into the city and to put a mark on everybody that sighs and cries about all the abominations that are being committed and that when judgment came those people would be spared Lord I want you to be able to put a mark on me not the mark of the beast but the mark of the Savior the mark of the Son of God the seal of the Holy Spirit I want you to, I want you to mark me I want you to, I, I, I'm going to be one of those that sighs and that cries about 
what's happening all around me. Whether it changes anything or not, I'm not going to be found sitting down and being quiet. And I pray you'd raise up an army of, of soldiers from this congregation that'll do the same. Help me, Lord, to be full of truth, but also not to forget grace. Help me to love big, but not, not let that bring me to a place where I lack discernment and the ability to judge and call right, right, and wrong, wrong. Help us all, Lord. Add your blessing this time of invitation. I know it's not been evangelistic in that sense, but maybe there's somebody here who realizes they've been listening to the wrong teaching. They've been living the wrong life. Believing the wrong things. I pray that as we preach the law, we preach about sin, we preach about judgment, that the Holy Spirit would use those words to bring about conviction, to convince people that they need Jesus, to bring them to His feet in repentance and faith. Just have your way. Do whatever you want to do, and we'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray.